the building is is complex, and I'm sure everybody else that's that gets to be involved in it would would echo that. The running of them, um, to some extent, the same thing, right? Take all the normal complexities. We obviously don't have the complexities in most cases that quite come up with, um, you know, people need feed right this second, or it's going to mess up the entire, you know, food production chain, or I'm going to have animals that are going to starve. I mean, we're, we're feeding research animals and they need the feed. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. And AB Vista. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Adam Fahrenholtz, who is an associate professor in the Prestige Department of Poultry Science at North Carolina State University. Go Pack. That's for a few of our audience members. You know who you are. <laughs> His focus for research is in the areas of feed manufacturing, technology, regulatory compliance, and the feed manufacturing process management. Dr. Fahrenholtz coordinates the feed milling program, which incorporates an undergraduate minor and both undergraduate and graduate certificates. He teaches courses on feed milling technology, quality assurance, and facility and process management. He also oversees the operation of the NC State Feed Mill Education Unit and its academic research and extension missions. Additionally, Dr. Fahrenholtz serves as an industry consultant and coordinates an extension program focusing on industry education, the provision of resources for developing programs associated with regulatory compliance, and addressing continuous quality and process improvement in feed manufacturing facilities. Welcome, Dr. Fahrenholtz. How are you doing? Hey, Kate. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. I hope your fall semester's off to a good start. So, yeah, so far so good. Everybody's uh, getting into the, the swing of things. We've got a couple weeks under our belts now. So, yeah, everyone's kind of figured out where or when their classes are and, <laughs> and you know, has switched what they need to and all that. So, yeah, we, we're, we're off to a good start so far. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Very exciting. Well, before we jump into our topics for discussion today, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to be at North Carolina State University? Sure. Yeah. So I ended up uh, doing my undergraduate at Kansas State University in uh, the degree at the time was called Feed Science and Management. Um, basically, I, I, I had some family involvement in the feed industry. My, my father worked in the uh, pharmaceutical side of, of animal food for uh, many years. And 
Um, I actually grew up around Kansas State. Uh, he, he and my mother were going through school at the time uh, when I was when I was born. So right there in Manhattan. Um, and I ended up going back there both probably somewhat because of the, uh, you know, familiarity there and the kind of, it's a nature versus nurture question to some extent. Um, <laughs> but I, I had a lot of interest growing up, uh, grew up on a horse farms, um, always around agriculture from that perspective. I, I, I liked engineering kind of things and, and I, I liked, you know, some physiology and nutrition and chemistry, but I, I wasn't going to be. I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer and I, I wasn't going to go be a, a nutrition focus or, you know, something in medicine or something like that. And, you know, so the, the going the feed milling route made a lot of sense because I, you know, got to play with equipment, but also had to understand the chemistry of what we were doing and the biology of the animals we were feeding and all those things came together. Um, and it made a lot of sense. So, um, I went there for my undergrad and I liked it enough that I stayed and did two more degrees, um, with, uh, Keith Banky. Uh, who was my advisor, uh, kind of going all through that, uh, all through that process. So I did my master's and my PhD. When I finished up my PhD, one of the things that I knew was in at K-State, we did a lot of focus, especially at that time, on the things that would be mostly applied to commercial feed manufacturing. And um, I knew that I, I wanted to get a little bit more of exposure to the integrated side of things before I decided what I was going to do for kind of the rest of my career. So I had some conversations with Charles Stark, who at that time was at NC State, and said, hey, is there any way I could come down and, and do some things with you at NC State and get to spend some time around the integrated industry and see uh, kind of what that's all about from the feed manufacturing side? And um, Charles had a had an availability to bring me down. He had some projects going on that he needed some extra bandwidth on, and so he brought me down. And round about that same time, there became a need to refill position at Kansas State uh, through the interview process. Charles ended up moving back to K State, and NC State asked if I would apply for his position. And I had decided at that point that I liked academia. I'd done a lot of teaching as an undergrad and had, had done some as it, already at my time here at NC State and uh, decided, yeah, you know, I, I think I might like that. It's giving me some ability to work with students, but also still spend time in the industry. And um, it all worked out, you know, quite well. And so I've been here, um, moved to North Carolina in 2012, but have been on faculty since November of 2013. So coming up on uh, nine years now. Wow. Yes. K-State has an incredible feed manufacturing program. Um, really, really excellent. It's become a very interesting thing, um, you know, for uh, since, and I, I should know my history better but than I do, but basically the, the very beginnings of the feed milling, uh, feed manufacturing program at K-State go back to like 1950. And until the program was created in the mid 2000s, so like 2006, seven is when they started the feed milling miner here at NC State. And between all that time, there was nobody else doing it, right? It was, it was just a, a K-State thing. And they then brought Charles from uh, Smithfield and, and asked him to start the program here. And since then, we've, we've also seen, you know, with other universities having to build new facilities, not necessarily because they want to start a program, but because they need new research facilities and their feed mills are really old and it's time to build new stuff. And they've decided the same thing, like there's a need here. Um, and so we, we know that there are a number of other universities now that are also kind of 
jumping into this this game of wanting to create a, an education pathway for folks that are going to go into the feed industry, which is great. The uh, the 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 industry the industry needs them and. I'm not going to get, you know, I'm not going to get everybody that, you know, needs to be in the Midwest or the West or whatever to come to North Carolina. And we're not going to get kids from North Carolina to go to school in Kansas and all that. So we can we can use some diversity of education around so that we can fill the needs kind of nationally uh, across the board. So I absolutely agree. It's much needed. And we've been very lucky to have you there in North Carolina, kind of our go to guy for the <laughs> for the East Coast uh, poultry industry. When I have feed milling questions, I know I always reach out to you. So very thankful to have you there. Thank you for not saying Kansas. <laughs> Although I know Manhattan is a hard town to leave. It's a very, very fun little town. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's great. It's, um, it's, it's certainly, it's, it's still home kind of from, from that perspective, you know, having grown up there and going back for college, but I, I love where I'm at and it's actually pretty amazing. Um, the, the allegories between Manhattan and Kansas state, obviously Raleigh's a little different cause we're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, it's a, it's a bigger city and, and it's the, you know, it's the capital and all that. But as far as like the NC state thing goes, it's, it's, it's so similar to what I remember, you know, being in school at K-State too, down to the, you know, the, the rivalry between NC State and UNC. And it's the exact same as the one between Kansas State and KU. Like it's yeah. down, down to the last, you know, they've got the law school and the med school and we've got the vet school and all it's and all that kind of stuff. So, um, no, I, I, I very much like where I'm at and I still get a lot of chance. You know, we still collaborate with the program back there at, at Kansas State. Um, and, and still get to do a lot of things with, with those folks. And I've still got friends and family back there. And, um, so it's nice to, to keep that connection, but, but we really love what we're doing here too. It's mm-hmm. been fun kind of continuing the, the building of this program. And, um, we've got some really good folks on, on staff as part of our animal food program here and, and good students and all that. So yeah, it's, it's been a really good opportunity for me and I've enjoyed it quite a bit and looking forward to being here for quite a while. So you mentioned a number of other universities are trying to uh, expand into the feed manufacturing area and, and building some of their own pilot mills or refurbishing, uh, renewing their old pilot mills. Could you talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges that are associated with running a university feed mill um, or in fact, building a university feed mill? Well, there's, that, that's, that's, that's two different questions, right? Um, building the, the building one is, is take for anybody that's gotten involved in this and in, in their time in the industry, even maybe kind of off to the side, take everything that you would have in the idea of building and planning a, a, a feed mill. All right. And we're obviously we're going to be talking about something on a smaller scale, but take everything that goes into that, all of the decision on what kind of equipment and process flows and layout and structure and all that, all that's the same. And then build it inside the state agency and Mm -hmm. all of the bid processes and all of the red tape and the figuring out the public private partnership and the dollars and the donors and all that. And, and so it just escalates up on top on the complexity of the managing of the project. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not quite as easy to say, Hey, this is the company we always go to that builds all our mills. That's who we're using. Mm, Nope. You don't get to do that. You get to go bid it out and, and see who you find and stuff like that. So the building is, is complex and I'm sure everybody else that's, that's gets to be involved in it would, would echo that the running of them. Um, to some extent, the same thing, right? Take all the normal complexities. We obviously don't have the complexities in most cases that quite come up with, um, you know, P 
people need feed right this second or it's going to mess up the entire you know food production chain or i'm going to have animals that are going to starve i mean we're we're feeding research animals and they need the feed but you know absolute worst comes to worst we're going to be probably in a situation where the research trial gets halted because something went bad at the feed mill and we got to go buy feed from somewhere else just to keep the animals fed right i mean mm-hmm. so there there's a little less stress from that standpoint the flip side of that is some of the feed we're making is just maintenance diets. And so it's, it's, we're sending feed over the dairy and it's, it's maintenance feed. And so it's just like being in a commercial feed mill. Um, and so it's all the normal stuff that goes on with that, but the rest of them are all research diets. And so we've got faculty that would like to see their, you know, every micro ingredient weighed out to the nearest hundredth, or if they had their choice thousandth of a pound <laughs> of lysine, right. You know, um, we're not going to do, we're, this ain't, this isn't going to be a 50 ton run or a 150 ton run or, or anything like that. And, and even in the case of um, the smaller commercial facilities, it's not going to be, oh yeah, every other week we make six tons of this for a customer. It's, it's not that. So one of the things that's unique is in a given year, it's been a while since I counted, but in a given year, um, I think I counted three years ago, like probably right before the pandemic, 2018, 19, maybe. We had 650 unique formulas that we produced in a given year because the vast majority of what we produce is a one-off. We make it mm-hmm. this one time. Here's this, this broiler trial, swine trial, whatever it is. We're going to make starter grower finisher, and there's eight treatments of each one of those. And then we're never going to make that diet ever again. And so the amount of formulations we go to, the amount of different ingredients I keep at the NC State Feed Mill, 70 different ingredients on hand at any one time. Um, which for an integrator would be a lot for a commercial mill. There's some that are going to have more than I do, but my entire ingredient catalog is in the <laughs> hundreds because I don't, you know, I don't stock palm oil, but it's not out of the question that I get an email today from a faculty member, um, a colleague of mine that says, Hey, we're going to do this trial and we're looking at some different things on different types of fat sources we need to source palm oil for this. All right, now we got to go get it. We got to bring it in. We're going to figure out how to heat it so that we can then use it and all this other kind of stuff. So all those, it's, it's the different number of it. Um, the other thing, and I'll apologize ahead of my time to all my colleagues and probably <laughs> to you as well. But I, one, one of the way I always tell the, the folks out in the, in the feed side of the industry is, how many nutritionists do you deal with in your job? And like, oh yeah, we have the one in our company. And I say, so I've got like 12 and Oof. they're all, and, and, they, and, and to be fair, you know, my colleagues are great. We, we work very well together, but they all formulate a little differently. They all have a different mm-hmm. way of wanting to put their diets together. They all, they all have a, a different perspective. You know, I, we keep three different, no, four different phosphorus sources on hand because some people like monocalcium and some people like dicalcium and some people still want to use D-floor. In a normal feed mill, it would be, we have monocalcium phosphate. This is what we use and we formulate around it and we don't quite do that. So it's it's the day-to-day complexities of all the different types of diets and things like that that come into it. And then the rest of it is, it's still a feed mill. And so stuff still breaks and so I had a mixer shaft actually break on me. Um, just a weird thing. It, I mean, it, the mixer's not that old, and it certainly didn't have that many hours and tons on it. It's just a bizarre thing. Nobody's nobody's fault. No, just a probably something in the metal somewhere. Well, when I basically send an email that day to the university and say, 
I've started quoting it and, you know, I, I don't know it all, all together, but I'm guessing this is no less than 50,000 that it's going to cost me to fix this because it doesn't matter how big the mixer is at that point. Yeah. My shaft is, a, is on my two ton mixer is a little cheaper than what it might be on someone else's, but the labor of opening up the mixer and pulling it out and change, that's all the same. It's, it mm-hmm. doesn't cost me any less than it would cost somebody that's making, you know, 20,000 tons of feet a week and has a 10 ton mixer to do that job. It's, it's the same job. And the university freaks out a little bit and they say, Oh, <laughs> you, you have that in your budget. And I'm going, no. Um, although we, we did find a way last year to absorb that into our budget. Um, we had to not do some other things, but that kind of stuff comes up, right. Where, you know, a motor fails, it's a $4,000 motor and we have to have it tomorrow if we're going to keep making feed. And that doesn't always work really well inside the university system. And so we have to do a lot of, a lot of things there. Um, ingredient prices are that way, right? All of a sudden, every load of soybean meal I bring in is $12,000 worth of soybean meal. Well, and normally around the university, there's a $5,000 bid cap. Okay, well, we can't bid every single individual load of soybean meal. So we had to come up with new ways to work around inside of our accounting system. And so we've got really good relationships going all the way up to university level purchasing that most folks don't have to deal with because we can spend a lot of money very quickly and we can sometimes have to spend it in an emergency situation. Um, and so, um, you know, those, those normal everyday feed milling things that come up, the university structure to be, and to be fair, probably shouldn't be, but the university and the state structure isn't necessarily designed for some of that. And so we, um, there's a lot of learning on, on how to manage it and building those relationships with all the folks across procurement and in audit offices and everything else to make sure we're doing things that remain legal within the state system while trying to operate a facility. So the research and the management of it can get complicated from that standpoint. But the stress level isn't quite what it is of, oh my goodness, this went out. We've got, you know, 8 million birds right now that need feed and we can't make feed today. Like at least I don't, I don't have to deal with that. And so <laughs> that that's, a, uh, that's certainly the flip side of it, which is nice. Different stress. Different stress. Still very stressful. Yeah, sometimes. I got good staff. I have, I have an excellent staff that, that runs our, our feed mill. Um, so most of the time I, I just kind of get the fun job of overseeing it. And they're the ones that are answering the phone calls and trying to figure out what do you mean your birds are out of feed? You said you only needed three tons of this research diet and that sort of stuff. And they handle all that. They handle all that quite well. They, uh, they do a great job. So I'm lucky there. So what kind of opportunities exist for, you know, the industry to support what is a very important program? I mean, to have people coming out of school with hands-on experience in in day-to-day feed mill operations is priceless, you know, um, to not have to start from scratch when you're, when you're training somebody, what is the route that the universe or that the industry could go to help support the university feed mill and the, the department as a whole? Yeah, it sounds like a great question. It sounds like I, I teed you up for that. Um, I swear, I swear <laughs> he didn't. didn't. Just for note, he didn't. I just really believe in the value of extension programs. Yeah, no, it's, and I appreciate you asking. So with, that's something that we're currently working on now, actually. Um, a lot of it honestly has to do with all the other universities that are kind of coming into this space and us wanting to sit to you know say, hey, you know, we this facility was built and went into operation in 2008 and the program started, but we're still here. We're still a big player in this. And, and you may see a lot of this other stuff, you know, in the magazines as these other programs and these other facilities come online, which is awesome. Um, 
but we've said, okay, we, you know, 10 years is a long time, especially when we talk about wanting to train students and having the newest technology and all that other kind of stuff. Um, things move really fast. We need to start doing some, some raising of capital so that we can, we can make those changes and make those improvements and add things. And, and we do what we can, um, with kind of the budget that we have or, um, the way the mill works, uh, and the program works is the feed that we make or the outside research we help with generates some income that we can put in. But it's, you know, it's not enough that I can go replace an entire pelleting line with something more modern, right? It, it's, that's a larger chunk than we're going to be able to generate in the year and then spend out in the year sort of a thing. Um, and so that's one of the things we're doing now, actually, uh, as we're beginning the process of trying to go out and talk to the, the industry and the, the folks that would support us and, and say, okay, first of all, how is our relationship right now with, with the industry? Are we providing what's needed? Are, you know, are, are we having those relationships that in the way that they need to be? Um, let's make sure that we're all happy with that first. What do our programs need to look like? Are the students that we're sending out meeting the needs or, do we need to rethink some of those things, which actually I, I think we do. Um, and so I, we've got some opportunities there. And then basically it becomes who, you know, who would like to support us. And there's everything from, um, you know, the, the basic university situation of writing gift checks that come to the program and they can, those can sit in an account until we get enough money to, to do things. Um, all the way up to the potential of, you know, oh, you actually like to, you know, name something, um, something like that, right? One of the, the big plans that we have that we hope to do is when the feed mill was built, uh, it wasn't built specifically with any like classroom space with it. Um, and when we take that idea along with, we do something every fall um, in November called the Feed Production School, the CFIA Feed Production School, and um, which is Carolina Feed Industry Association. And it's been a fantastic uh, program. Um, it's uh, the folks at CFIA, and then we hosted it at NC State, and then Chandler Adams, um, who is uh, a rep for a number of different companies. Most folks know him as a, as a CPM guy, but he reps a lot of different stuff. He does an amazing job of pulling speakers in and all that kind of stuff. And we bring 80-something people to this, and we don't have a great space out there to... Um, to, to put them. And so we, we cram them all into one of the smaller kind of conference areas we have out at the farms, but we like to have it out next to the feed mill because people want to go next door and see the mill. Right. And so we've got this idea of, we'd like to maybe build some space out there that would be able to host larger gatherings that would have classroom for when the students come and we're doing labs that would have some maybe lab space and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we've actually drawn up some plans for that and, and have some ideas and our hope is to maybe do some fundraising for that at the same time, say, okay, for every dollar that we, that we bring in X goes to the fundraising of that. And Y goes over into this enhancement for the feed mill itself. And so that we can, um, you know, repair and bring back to the way it was in 2008 when it was new, some stuff just wear and tear on, on the facility and then add things to it, um, automation things um, through Repeat, who is our automation supplier, um, sensors, and like I mentioned, some new equipment lines to be more modern. And so it's it's trying to make sure that we've got the right relationships with with everybody that's out there, and then asking them what they're willing to support. Um, and we know that it's a situation where 
you know, it could be a lot of small gifts that get us to our goal, or it could very well be somebody that says, Hey, you know, we, we want to be a big supporter of this. We want to put our name on it. We'll write one really, really big check because, you know, we're, we're in big support and probably something in the middle. So, um, yeah, it, it, anybody that's interested in talking about kind of what we're doing, we kind of have a team together of, of folks that are advising on it from the industry side, as well as, you know, ourselves in the program and our advancement office to figure out what the best way to do it is going to be. But we definitely don't want to be in a situation where, you know, 10 years from now, we're looking back and saying, well, the, the facility is 20 years old and yeah, we're still teaching students in it, but it's not the most current stuff that we're teaching them on. And, um, you know, kind of look back and say, you know, well, we're going to be at a point where we're going to have to build something new now versus we could spend the money and, and just kind of keep it up to date as, as we go. So that's our goal. And, and we hope maybe over the next, you know, two to five years to, to really do quite a bit of those things. That's, that's kind of the time frame we're looking at. That is fantastic information. And certainly for any of our audience members who are decision makers in the industry, please, please support your university wherever you may be. Yep. Um, those programs are training your future employees. They are also providing training to your current employees. Absolutely. And they are a tremendous resource. As I mentioned, I've reached out many times about you know field questions, troubleshooting questions that I just couldn't get a handle on by myself. So thank you so much for that information. Sure, you bet. Thanks for asking. Moving to, to talk a little bit about uh, your research work, I noticed some of your work has centered on feed mill applications for NIR. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? What is the state of, of NIR in the feed mill? And really, I'd like to ask, we hear a lot about inline NIR. Do you ever think we're going to get there in the poultry industry? I really hope we would. <laughs> but what are some of the challenges you see with that? And then what are some of the, the benefits of utilizing NIR in the feed mill? Sure. So the, the first challenge, I think, with NIR and, and the one I see when I go out into the, the industry is one that's existed, frankly, since Benchtop NIR sh showed up. And it's too much of the idea that someone bought this and it's a magic box and I'll never send another sample off to the lab again and all that kind of stuff. And it's and, and that's not how the technology works. Right. It's no, you, you're still going to send samples off to the lab. You're going to bias the what you have against the lab that you prefer. But what it does give you is instead of, okay, we've got our our schedule of sending samples off and we're sending, you know, one sample of every this feed type once a month to get analyzed or this ingredient or whatever. Now you still do that, but you also have this machine in there to every sample in between you can do on site. And, and so the amount of information you can grab is astronomically higher, but you got to manage the machine first. And I, I, I mean, I go to places where someone bought this thing and they invested the money and they trained on it. And now it just sits on the desk and doesn't get used because they thought they were getting rid or, or somebody when they did the budget said, oh, we're not going to have to do lab samples anymore. And then when that didn't wasn't exactly the case, people stopped being so interested and wait a minute, was this financially a good idea? Because they approached it wrong, not because it's not a good idea, but because they approached it wrong from the, from the jump. The amount of data that you can grab, I mean, even if it's just basic proximate data, much less what you can do with some of the cloud-based applications with the different companies um, where you can upload your, your spectra and they can do more with it and give you digestibility and all other kinds of stuff we that someone finds something new to do with NIR all the time becomes huge especially as we start and 
I'm going to use this term, although sometimes I hate this term as the at, at the university, the big data. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my joke around here is that if I think if I walk around the halls and I say the words big data and microbiome lo- like loud enough, someone will just drop money out of the <laughs> ceiling because it, those words are so important. But the feed mill is a great a great place for this idea of big data. We always talk about the art of feed manufacturing. And what I usually tell people is a lot of the reason that it's still an art is because we don't have the ability to collect the data to make it a science. You know, I can sit in the feed mill and I can hear something going with the pellet mill and go, hey, it's about to plug. And people like, see, that's the art of pelleting. And I'm thinking that's true. But if I had some sort of a sensor that was picking up the same thing that I'm picking up in my ear, it would know it too. Right. And so there's there's a science there. It's just our brain is the best supercomputer that there is. But the NIR plays a big role in that. And so if you could you could grab every sample and you could constantly be looking at all this different information and throwing it into something that was regressing the data and figuring out nutritional trends and all that, there's a huge amount of power there. Right. So that's that's just on the bench top, but it takes a lot of work. So that then goes to the inline. So you referenced some of the the research that we've done. Um, we've got some stuff right now that is um, that's been shared. Um, Andrea Rubio is one of my PhD students, um, and she's uh, done some work on it uh, relating to the mixer. And she's she shared some of her data at some of the meetings and things so far. And we've got a an article that's in review right now to to put some of that out into the actual press. Um, what we were looking at is the ability of using inline NIR to uh, basically measure mix uniformity as as feed comes out of the mixer, both just from the standpoint of, hey, then you'd every single batch of feed as it was going through the conveyor, leaving the mixer, you would know, are we meeting our nutrient spec? That's that's a relatively easy thing. And we've shown, I mean, yes, it can do that. It can do that just fine. It can do that quite well. The uniformity thing is a little more tricky, and we're still working with the, the folks at Bruker on what that would look like. Um, they're the ones that, that we use their inline NIR, and, and they've been a, a big help on that. As we all know, using something like protein, for example, for doing a mixer analysis doesn't really work because it's not single source. We got protein coming from so many different ingredients. So we can't just use the basic proximates, but what we're trying to do is basically look at the noise that the NIR is seeing and seeing if we can tie that back to what we know was the uniformity based on doing normal kinds of mixer analysis on the same batches of feed Mm -hmm. and seeing if we can't basically train the system to look at what the coefficient of variation is in that batch of feed. Our thought process being that we know, and and we've got some data on this as well, uh, part of the same experiment, although we couldn't get it actually as a bad mixer CV. For anybody that's out there, that's got uh, like a twin shaft counterpoise high speed type mixer. So what our research shows is that we can't mix a bad batch of feed, just so you know, <laughs> um, as long as we don't overload the mixer. Um, but we could get CVs differences, you know, from from four to five up to like twelve to fifteen. So still not crazy. But when we feed that to birds, we can't pick up the differences, and we know that from some of our data and from previous data that's been in the literature for for years as the animals get older and bigger so larger birds or older pigs whatever cv becomes a little less important because the meal size gets bigger right so is there the potential to use something like nir to say hey i can know the mixer cv coming out of my mixer every single batch of feed 
And therefore, if I'm time limited, if I'm not time limited, then just mix the feed as well as you can. But if I'm time limited, maybe in an older facility, um, and I'm making 150% of what the facility was designed for way back when, and I don't have enough time to batch my feed, well, maybe can I borrow a minute of mix time on my finishers and devote that over here to my starter so I'm getting really good mixes on my smaller meal size animals. And it's a little, it's not quite as good on the larger ones, but the data shows the animals can't pick up the difference. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like a good idea, but I'd want to know what the CV was. So can we use inline NIR for that? You asked about where's it going. I, I mean, the, the holy grail, right? The holy grail. And we, we know that people are using it to do inline measurement on particle size. Mm -hmm. And we know that that works because if I I'm doing bench top and I grind the corn one way and I grind the corn another way, I get two different answers on my nutrient profile. Mm -hmm. So some work that um, JT Pope did um, when he was my previous PhD student, uh, JT's now with uh, Nash Johnson House of Rayford. Um, you know, we, we ground stuff to a whole bunch of different particle sizes. We did that work with FOSS and um, we, we were able to verify that, yeah, there's a difference between the you know, different particle sizes on the exact same lot of corn, like the exact same corn and we could pick it up. Okay. So NIR, if it's trained, can actually do particle size analysis. Cool. And we know there are folks doing that. Um, the Holy Grail though, is sticking inline NIR in each one of our ingredient um, conveyors coming into the scale and knowing, and in, in effect, instead of putting into my automation system, uh, the actual formula, you know, it's 67% corn, 27% soybean meal, et cetera, et cetera. I'm basically putting instead what we put into least cost formulation program. I want this much protein, this much fat fiber, you know, all this other stuff here, are my bounds, um, here are the prices and letting it do it. And then now letting the system say, Hey, we seem to be on a slightly higher trend protein of soybean meal here. We can back the soybean meal off a little bit. It's pretty expensive. And put in a little corn, adjust the lysine, and I've got a, a diet that's now 30 cents cheaper per ton on the fly, right? Um, here's what I think, and I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I think from the standpoint of the NIR technology, the, the ability already exists to take a single NIR, run it through multiple different channels, and as long as you're not pulling all the ingredients at the same time, put a camera in each one of those and pull that information. Okay, that exists. I can't imagine that somebody out there can't then program everything that we just said and create a all the crazy artificial intelligence stuff we see. The fact that that couldn't be done, and in fact, I'm, I'm fairly certain there's a few feed mills, um, I think in South America, that are already doing some of this, right? So is it possible that we could do that? Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Is it currently um, economically feasible? No. Um, I know that, um, I believe the, uh, again, this goes back to why we want to do things in our mill, the, the new feed mill in Illinois, um, they, uh, Bueller did a lot of the automation and things there. I believe they've installed in inline NIR at, at, in their feed all throughout it so that they can play with some of this, these kinds of things. So it's absolutely the future. Um, is it cost effective for everybody to go put in right now? Now we're probably not there yet, mm -hmm. but does it seem possible from, you know, in the long term that we get to that? 
uh, yeah, I, I absolutely think that it is. So there's some really, really cool stuff on there. The other fun part about that, and it goes back to the education side too, right, is it's kind of like when all of a sudden um, all the commercial mills started putting automated bagging systems in. And now, okay, I no longer need three employees, one sacking, one sewing, and one stacking. I only need one. That's great. But this one actually has to understand some things about like robotics. <laughs> and I never needed that employee before, right? I needed manual labor. I didn't need this. This is the same thing, right? It's, oh, well, we can do that. But is the, you know, I, I, the, the maintenance people that I've always needed to hire that I needed, I needed mechanics. I needed people that could turn wrenches and all that. Well, I'm still going to need that. And now I'm also going to need a computer science person on staff, um, you know, that it is at least as part of my complex, you know, from the, from the integrated standpoint that can go around and, you know, be on the phone. They may not be fixing it, but I need someone like that that can be on the phone with the people when they're saying, okay, go into the interface and I want you to change this. And we're going to try to recode it. And, you know, those of us in the mill are going to go, oh, no. No, you're going to have to send somebody for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to have somebody that can do those kinds of things. So hmm. that'll be that'll be another part of it is is meeting the technology with people that can do it too, you know? That's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, that holy grail situation. I mean, that is probably the feed cost savings alone, not to mention meeting the nutrient requirements of the bird more specifically is a, I would guess, multi-billion dollar question. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's astronomical to think about. Do you think it's close enough that someone building a feed mill in the next decade should be thinking about building that mill so that it could accommodate inline NIR? Yeah, for sure. De- definitely. I would definitely say the accommodate part, right? Definitely from the standpoint of I'd be having conversations with folks of, all right, maybe we can't afford to do it now. Maybe nobody even knows how to tie in you know, bringing the NIR into the repeat or beta or WEMS. Maybe we don't know how to do all that yet, but I definitely want to accommodate it is what do I need to know about how I'm installing screw conveyors, making decisions on where stuff is located? Do I, I mean, something as simple as do I need to have a dedicated room over here that could house the the cabinet and everything that I would Mm -hmm. need so that it's not, you know, I don't want this, this is hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment with a whole bunch of fiber optic line going around. I'm not just going to sit it there on the floor to get run into by the forklift. Right. Uh, Do I need to make sure I've got, you know, something as simple as that. I'd be having those conversations for sure. Then of course, if we're building a mill in the next 10 years, it's probably going to be operating for the next 30 to 40, the way that, you know, mills are, you know, 30 year life or longer. Um, I mean, we've got mills out there that are, you know, hundred years old too, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> I felt a little personally targeted by your comment about older mills running at 150% capacity, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the state of the industry right now. Yes, it is. And so, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right on. If it, those are the kind of things I, I'd be having some real conversations about what is that technology going to look like in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, let's make sure we're building it to accommodate it now. Mm -hmm. Because even if we're not ready to install it, we see it when people are building mills now, right? Where they do it on capacity now. It used to be you built it to the capacity you needed and maybe you plan for adding on over here. Now we build the mill and we have a whole bay for a third pellet mill over here because it's cheaper to build it now and install it later if we need it. Mm -hmm. Same thing would be true here. Hey, put the, put the, uh, you know, conduit in and whatever else to be able to run this stuff because it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to do it now 
than it than it will be to do later. And if you never use it, by and large, it probably didn't cost you all that that much. But chances are you'll you'll find a way to use it for something else. So, no, I think I think that's I think that's right on. I think that would make sense from a planning standpoint. I think in the in the near term, the mixer profile and particle size applications sound really really promising. Particularly from a labor standpoint, I mean, I think it's you're, you're doing fairly well if you're measuring those things a few times a week, um, particle size a little bit more. But mixer profiles, I mean, they take time to come back, and you know, keeping it within some set specs, you feel fairly confident. In it. It's those times that something is actually wrong with the mixer, where that would allow you to see it right away, as opposed to waiting for sample results to come back. Exactly. How how nice would it be instead of getting there? Oh my goodness! If it was just like anything else, tied into an alarm in the automation system, mm-hmm. and it said this batch recipe says that you want a CV of ten percent or less, or fifteen percent or less, whatever you want to set it at, um, based on your rules and regulations and whatever else. And the thing comes up with an alarm and says, "Hey, um, you're trending out on this. Someone might want to go open the mixer and see if there's buildup or a broken ribbon or." whatever right mm-hmm. yeah that that'd be really cool to do and yeah i i, I think that stuff's coming I, I think it's gonna take some time just like anything else and, and take some money but i think we will we will get there and then goes back to what you're talking about data mm-hmm. now i've got i mean i've got nutrient specs on every individual diet and i can say more or less you know which farms most of that feed went to and i can tie that back to the processing data at the processing plant what birds came from what and now i've got this huge from the start to the end of this was exactly the nutrient profile, but it was slightly made up differently with a little more synthetic amino acid and how it's specifically to that tie to breast meat yield. And I've got the data now and I've got this giant database and now we can go look at stuff that we could, couldn't only dream about before. And now we're still dreaming, but we can kind of see the possibility. Ask somebody, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and we would have said, I mean, I don't know, someday in the future, some sort of science fiction we may allow for that, <laughs> but I can't even imagine what it would be. Now we can say, oh, we've got the tools. Now we've got to figure out how to put them together and pay for it. So, mm-hmm. And handle the big data. And Well, and handle the big data. Yeah. The uh, people people that want to go and, and bring that. We've actually had some graduate students here um, that have you know been in poultry science or in animal science, and they've, they've basically slapped a big data project onto there and started taking some of these classes over in engineering and computer science and things like that to learn about it. Cause they've realized, Hey, it's, that's going to be a part of, of my world. And we've had a few even PhD projects that have, you know, focused on machine learning and things, trying to figure out how to, you know, agricultural data can feed into that from a, from a live production agricultural standpoint. Yeah. Could you see maybe a, an undergraduate emphasis on that computer science merged with poultry science in the future? Absolutely. Um, again, I'm, this is where I'm going to get in trouble when someone from my university watches this, <laughs> I plug other universities. But um, again, I think that's something because of what they're doing with their, their mill at um, Illinois, some of the stuff, if you read about theirs, they've got a concentration where they're going to, they're going to build, they're going to take kind of the nutrition animal science side and the, um, the computer science side and build it together. And yeah, you know, here at NC state, we've got some programs that are similar. Um, folks can, for example, take a, um, do a degree in what's called ag science where they can, it's more of a generalized degree, but they can pick two different areas to go. And so you can say, hey, I'm going to merge kind of a minor in poultry science and a minor in bio and ag engineering. And I'm going to stick those together to create a degree. Or I'm going to take something like computer science and animal science and stick those together because, you know, I'm interested in 
I, you know, I've, I've always been around animal lag. I grew up with it, but boy, do I love computer stuff. We tell people that all the time, students that come in as freshmen and tour the mill and stuff. And I sit there and I look at them. And I say, look, see all this automation stuff. This is the future. And in fact, right now, this is state of the industry. So if you love, if you're someone who sits here and loves that, you don't have to be the person that goes out into the chicken house and, and is doing something. You could sit behind a computer and have a huge impact on our industry too, right? So if mm -hmm. you're not the hands-on person, there's that. The cool thing about our industry is if you are the hands-on person, we're still going to need you too. If you're mm -hmm. like, look, this, this automation stuff is for the birds for me. Cool. We still need someone to go out and actually look at the birds and pick them up and, and do all that work too. And so there's kind of a home for everybody, which mm -hmm. is really nice. And a lot of industries, it's not like that anymore, right? It's like, I'm sorry if, if you're the, you know, you're the one guy who wants to build the car by hand, you know, you can go start, you know, something where you're doing something boutique, but you're not going to come work for General Motors anymore. We need you to be able to do it all on the computer. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I love to hear that there's more flexibility in the degree programs to accommodate all those different interests, especially because it sounds like I'm going to have to go back to school. So I'm not an obsolete old lady in 10 years, not knowing any of this computer science stuff. So I'll look forward to that. <laughs> We've talked about it here. So we've got in, in our program, um, poultry science, for example. So I've got my feed milling minor, right? But just as the degree overall, there's the science concentration, there's the technology concentration. Mm -hmm. And science is largely those that are going to go on to graduate school, vet school, things like that. Technology is more the industry focus. And we've had some really good discussions amongst our teaching faculty here just in the last six months of we're calling it technology let's really start focusing on the technology. Let's figure out how to bring that into our classes. What do we need to add? What are we not talking about? Um, so that the students can walk out of here and hit the ground running we, with these new technology ideas, whether it be data handling or knowing how to run automated housing systems or the systems that are running the processing plant or the feed mill or whatever, mm -hmm. and really wanting to focus on that. So that, that's a focus for us here at NC State. Um, is to to go all the way from the actual day-to-day -day working technology all the way up to the data um, analysis and then bring that all together with the understanding of the physiology and nutrition and management of, of the animals as well. Um, I think there's there's huge opportunity for growth there. And, and most of our teaching faculty are on that same page. So we've got some exciting work ahead of us on that side too. Very exciting. Very exciting. Well, changing lanes a little bit, um, I wanted to talk to you about still still associated, but pellet quality. And specifically, I find that when we talk about pellet quality issues, especially troubleshooting, we spend a lot of time on you know particle size and the microstructure of the pellet, temperatures, times. But what gets neglected a little bit is the moisture component in in the steam. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. I don't want to say the art of steam quality, but apparently we don't have enough data. So the art of steam quality yeah, right, right. Um, and why it's important to have not only feed mill staff who are, you know, experts in that area, but also to bring them into these discussions when you're talking about pellet quality. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a great question. Um, so we've done some we've done some work actually just recently here. Uh, we, we, we've been playing around um, pellet pelleting. I mean, going back to. When I was an undergrad and running running stuff in the mill at K State, all the way up through my PhD project, I, I love spending time around the pellet mill. That's kind of my my favorite my favorite part. Um, and so a lot of my graduate students have kind of picked up on that, and they've chosen their projects to go in some of those directions. We've done some really cool stuff on um, looking at the impact of different of the different 
areas inside pelleting, steam conditioning, and the pellet dye itself. Uh, JT did a bunch of that work on the um, survivability and the nutrient specifications of feed as it's coming out based on heat and time and moisture and all that other kind of stuff. Um, some others around the country and around the world have obviously done that work too, and we, we're building up a pretty nice catalog of information. So my a master students of mine who um, who she's uh, just graduated, she's now down at the University of Florida um, doing some stuff on like 3D printing of fish proteins and things like that. Some some really cool stuff that she got interested in doing some of the work she did here. Um, she was originally a, a poultry, uh, kind of a poultry person. Um, her name's Sharon Chua. Um, and she, she did her master's work. And that's what we looked at, right? We looked at a bunch of stuff with moisture. And we looked at what if it's coming in from the mixer? What if it's coming in from the steam? What if it's a little bit of both? How, you know, how does that, and some of it is stuff we already know. I mean, we know that if we use moisture coming from steam it's more effective if it, if i add four percent moisture via steam versus four percent from the mixer the steam's going to do a better job like that's not groundbreaking but we did find some pretty cool stuff about well what if we couldn't get to four and we could only do three and one what does that look like and so we did some really neat things like that those those articles are actually also currently in review um so hopefully those will be out soon we also ended up doing some of the work on What's happening? You said microstructure of the pellet. What's happening there? Um, and and we did a little bit on like the starch gelatinization. That's always kind of an interesting one because folks, a lot of folks still want to talk about starch gelatinization, although in reality in pelleting animal feed, we gelatinize some starch, but it's not like extrusion, right? We're not doing huge amounts of it. And it doesn't really tie back to pellet quality. Most of the time when we look at the amount of gelatinization we see, which is pretty, pretty miniature. In fact, sometimes we gelatinize more going through the hammer mill due to the friction we create there. We certainly do more gelatinization moving through the pellet dye than we do going through the steam conditioner. But what we found while she was looking at that and she did some cool scanning electron microscope looks and some other stuff was some really neat things related to like glass transition temperature of proteins and the amorphous uh, actions that happen of the proteins inside the pellets. And tied, that gets tied a lot back to the moisture. So adding enough moisture to have enough heat transfer that you are changing that transition temperature that the proteins can start to move and do some of the gluing. And the starch plays a role. It's just not huge. And it's not. it's probably not worth targeting a certain percentage of starch gelatinization in a lot of cases um at least especially with like w with chickens you know some of the monogastric species the you know, pigs and they're gonna the cooked starch may help them a little bit and chicken less so right turkey less so um not to say it can't help at all but the protein thing was was really really cool and so when we go back and we look at that it does as you said have a huge amount to do with the amount of moisture and how we're getting it in there um, from a steam quality perspective, there, there's two parts to look at that. There's the looking at it from the nutritional and the pelleting and the pellet quality aspect. And then there's just flat the engineering aspect of moving it through the feed mill. The overall idea, and there have been theories for years, people of, well, you know, you should take the insulation off of, of the steam piping so many feet before this so that you start to get some condensation, which seems like a really bad idea because we spend a heck of a lot of money over here <laughs> to take natural gas and turn water into steam. And that is not a cheap process, especially these days. And if I want to add a little bit of water, I can run a water line and spray some water into the conditioner, right? If, it, it doesn't make sense to 
intentionally lower my steam quality and I could just add water there instead. Mm-hmm. Like that's a way cheaper alternative. I could do it in the mixer too, obviously, but I can, I can set it up to be sprayed in at the, at the conditioner if I wanted to. Um, the other thing that we hear all the time, um, and, and I see it when I go into feed mills, is this idea of changing the pressure before it goes into the conditioner for wet steam versus dry steam. We also hear things about, you know, well, we do a different total dissolve solids in the winter and the summer and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not going to say that, that changes don't occur because they do. But there is no one size fits all because everybody's boiler is different. Everybody's Mm -hmm. steam piping is different. The age of the facility is different. The type of valves you use is different. Some people have really good steam traps because they're keeping up with them and and fixing them when they need to be. Other people have steam traps that haven't worked in quite a while, and they're sending huge amounts of steam back to the condensate return, all this other kind of stuff. So any idea that, oh, this one way of doing it is going to work for everybody, that doesn't work in feed milling in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't care <laughs> what part of the process we talk about from receiving to loadout because it works for you doesn't mean it works for your neighbor, right? Um, but one thing that, that, that we talk a lot about is that pressure. And it's, and okay, well, when we go to higher pressure, there's more BTUs per pound of steam. Therefore, it's drier steam. Although if you look at the range that we typically operate in, which is somewhere between like 20 and 60 or 70 PSI, and you do the math on a saturated steam table, the amount of moisture difference there is you couldn't you couldn't take samples out of the conditioner and analyze it and find it if you wanted to. It's it's so minuscule. However, what probably is happening, this is always a little difficult to explain because it, it seems counterintuitive, but when we go to a higher pressure steam, that steam occupies less volume. And what I am, and so that my, my water vapor is all very condensed in one spot, right? And what I'm actually doing when I'm conditioning and I'm pelleting is I'm adding a certain amount of water, you know, to get my up to 16, 17% moisture before I pellet. Well, that steam, okay, because it's high, it's more compressed, moves more slowly actually through the system, to, I mean, it's it's still moving pretty fast, but it's moving more slowly than the low pressure steam, and so there, because it's it, it's so compressed, it can move more slowly and deliver the same amount, you know, pounds of water. Because it moves more slowly, water is much more likely to fall out into the drip legs where it's supposed to go, get pulled out in the separators, get pulled out in the steam traps, all that kind of stuff, and therefore it's not carrying any. Um, any water with it. The steam quality is, quote, higher because it's moving slower and the system is being able to do what it needs to do. We go to a really low pressure steam, that stuff has to fly through in order to get where it needs to go. All the water, any any lower quality, let's say it's 98% steam quality and I got 2% basically water being carried, it's not coming out of the stream. This Nothing can pull it out quick enough. That stuff's flying through so quickly. And so therefore we get wetter steam but it's it's not the it's not a thermodynamic thing it's a physics thing um the other thing that that is a really big part of that is as we're controlling the amount of steam that's going into the conditioner we're doing that using some sort of a valve we always we most of the time we talk about mason neelan valves but there's other kinds as well and basically it's a percent open tells me how much steam i'm passing through well if i'm at a lower a lower psi and the steam occupies more volume, 
I'm going to need more of a range of opening of that valve in order to modulate my steam. And that's a good thing because I can tell the automation system I want to bring the temperature down and it can close it from 65% down to 62% and make a little bit of a change. But if my pressure is really high and it's all really condensed and dense, in that same situation, now my valve is only operating from 0% open to 15% open. And when I tell it to make a change and it drops at 1%, that's a huge change. And, and, and so modulating the steam becomes a lot different. So it's it's certainly has this impact on pelleting and pellet quality. And like I said, we've done some cool stuff here about what it impacts the nutrition and all that's incredibly true. Um, we've learned that the actual action of things is more in the pellet dye than in the conditioner, but certainly how much moisture we add has a huge impact on what happens in the pellet dye. But just the controlling of the steam usually comes down to maintenance and physics. It comes down to um, making sure you have all the components that actually work the way they're supposed to. And like steam traps and valves aren't cheap, but if you go look at the amount of money it costs to turn all that water into steam, and then it's not being adequately applied because you're not spending a thousand dollars or something on this on this trap that that's not money well spent um and so there's a lot of it that just comes down to the management and the maintenance and the kind of understanding of the physics of it as much as anything um and then obviously we have uh you know go into facilities and you say well what's your retention time and they say it's 45 seconds and i said well how do you know it's 45 seconds oh because when they installed it they told me it was 45 seconds I'm saying, okay, well, what did you want? And they said, well, we wanted something that would do between 30 seconds and a minute. I'm saying, well, if I were installing it and I was selling it to you, I would also tell you it's 45 seconds. Like, have you ever verified what your retention time actually is? Have you ever popped the thing open, you know, scrammed it under load, popped it open and seen what your conditioner fill looks like? Do you actually know what's happening inside that conditioner that you're getting good fill, good retention time? Um, have you adjusted picks and gotten everything just the way you, you know, and, and we got some folks out there that, that rep equipment that won't let their facilities not do that stuff, right. That are just excellent at that doing, providing that technical service and say, no, we're going to dial you in from the, from the jump. Um, we have other situations where, you know, stuff shows up on a pallet and the millwrights install it and they turn it on and, and we go and nobody goes through that work of validating their system. And so to make sure that the steam conditioning is doing what it's supposed to, all that needs to be done and it needs to be, needs to be watched. We also see just simple things, all the piping coming into the conditioner, it's called the steam harness, right? There are places out there where the steam harness is like spaghetti. And, and honestly, the, the, the one at the NC State Feed Mill is a little like this. It's on my list of things to, to change. Um, and there's just pipes going everywhere and you can't quite figure out what they're doing. And then there's some that are in new installations that are incredibly elegant and they're very simple and they, and it's it, they're very balanced. So when one pellet mill chokes and shuts down, it doesn't affect the other two, all that kind of stuff. And again, that's, that's physics and engineering more than it is anything else. And so it's having the right people involved that can help make those decisions and do those designs makes a, makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. That's, Wonderful summary on steam. A lot of information. That relationship between steam velocity and uh, moisture retention and the condensate loss has always been very counterintuitive to me that you would think the high pressure, you would think it was the opposite. So that has always blown my mind. Um, 
very important principle. Uh, additionally, what you talked about with making sure you have enough finesse on the adjustment for the Mason-Neal valve, very important. Um, and, and I do agree with you that we often see on the maintenance side, people stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. And that really shoots you in the foot, especially with energy costs being as high as they are. Yep. I, I would say, and I might have a bunch of, I might have a, a, a whole bunch of female managers that would, that would yell and scream and disagree with me. Um, I feel anyway, uh, based on the conversations I have, that we are at least moving more towards the idea of the feed mill being looked at as a part of the whole where where investments can be made instead of just a cost center. Mm-hmm. Like for, for a very long time, it's a, please make the feed as cheap as possible, as fast as possible, right? And I think we're getting a little bit more towards that ingredient cost, fuel cost, driving that a lot. But the more we learn about feed quality and the importance that it has and all that makes a big difference. And also the more enzymes and probiotics and and high expense feed ingredients we're using that are also need to be handled with some care, whether it be how they're weighed out because they cost $5 a pound, let's please not waste it, all the way to making sure that we're adequately mixing them and pelleting them. It feels a little bit like we're transitioning into the idea of no, we 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 need to pay attention. We need we need to spend some money over here to make money, um, and so hopefully some of that. But it still holds true that it's like, well, you know, I'd like to overhaul this, and it's well, show me the return on investment, and if it's anything over two years, you're going to have a hard time selling it, and and kind of getting out of that mindset on larger things that can really make big differences um, is is still a work in progress too. So. Yeah, it it takes the data collection and analysis power to be able to prove that return on investment. And for a lot of things, that's just not there yet. Exactly right. Um, Before we wrap up with our closing questions, I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, training courses for preventive control qualified individuals. I was fortunate to take that course at uh, NC State a few years ago. We've been seeing more of these courses kind of pop up. Um, which is good because it's necessary to train individuals in the feed mill. I just wanted to check in with you about if people cannot attend the excellent course at North Carolina State due to geography, timing, et cetera, what should they be looking for in those training programs to make sure they're attending a quality training program that's focused on feed mill, uh, FISMA, and then which personnel in the feed mill do you recommend get that training? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we we still do ours here. We've kind of shifted ours here to – somewhat on demand, uh, meaning, so my colleague, Marissa Cohen, she's our area specialized agent for animal food safety. Um, she, she runs the courses and then I, I help her instruct them. She just collects people asking when's the next course going to be when, when she's in, when she's got a big enough group, we hold one. Um, here in North Carolina, our numbers have dropped off a little bit because we're, we're so heavily integrated that, um, we've kind of trained everybody. It, it feels like in a lot of ways, um, although most of what we see now are the smaller commercial um, kind of things or people that are just getting into the animal food world a little bit. So um, we'd love to see more folks. And so our, a plug for ours, if you're interested, find, find me, find Marissa, let us know you want a course. We, we'd love to train as many people as, as are interested in being trained. Beyond that, um, so I'm always going to be a little um, biased towards the group that was involved in uh, the original creation of the curriculum. Um, so there's uh, an excellent one that's done at Kansas State 
Um, and it includes uh, Cassie Jones and Dave Fairfield from NGFA. Um, and Cassie was another one of the authors of the curriculum, along with me and Charles um, and uh, someone named Brandy Miller, uh, who was the adult education specialist. We, we kind of wrote the curriculum, but when we did it, we had a group. It was about 10 or 15 advisory folks that were in the room at the same time. And that's what we, we call the TOT group now, the trainer of trainers. Um, and if you can find some a course that's also being taught by a tot that's been around since the beginning and knows all the stories of how stuff came to be and why it is the way that it is. Those are awesome. So um, if you can't make it to ours, um, which yeah, come, come, come to ours, that would be great. We'd, we'd love to have the numbers. Um, but the, the ones uh, that, that Cassie and Dave do at K-State are great. Um, uh, there, there's, a few um, that get held at various different universities um, as well. Those are usually pretty good um, from the standpoint of, of those folks have a, uh, a specific kind of knowledge base, obviously, that they're, that they're working from. Like you said, that they are, they're not just trainers. They're folks that are actually involved in the animal food industry. And I think, um, I think, and when you go look for courses and you go to the FSPCA website and you look for them, it can be a little hard to figure out the expertise without doing some additional legwork. But if you see one and you think this might be good, it's held at this location, here's the lead instructor, do a little bit of legwork on that lead instructor and see what you find out. Um, I'm not going to say that anybody that's just you know a trainer, like this is their business, they're a consultant that does training, doesn't do a good job because there are some out there that are excellent. But if you can find one where you find this person's bio and whether they work for a company or a trade association, um, AFIA, uh, Gary Huddleston um, at AFIA, he runs courses for them. And if you were to go look up his bio or Dave Fairfield at NGFA, you go look up their bio and you find out, oh, they like ran feed mills for 20 years. And then they switched over to doing the regulatory side of stuff. Or if you go read my bio, and which we've already covered, or if you go read Cassie's and she's, you know, Cassie's turned her whole program, uh, her whole research program, in addition to her, her teaching, um, but her whole research program is about animal food safety. Like that, that's what she does. Yeah, these are good people to go take it from. So do some legwork on those um, is, is what I would say and, and look at it and say, okay, is the lead instructor that's listed, if I go figure out who they are, does it look like, oh, no, this person very clearly has some expertise in animal food manufacturing or nutrition beyond, you know, just being trained to take this course? So that that would be that would be my advice as far as that goes um, beyond just come take the one at NC State and let us know you want it. Um, as far as who should. Certainly anybody that's in charge of or related to quality, because quality is, you know, the, the quality assurance group is usually also going to be kind of the regulatory affairs folks as well. Um, beyond that, it, there are some there are some companies that seem to have decided they're going to have everybody. They're mm -hmm. just going to they're going to make everybody in the whole place trained, and, you know, almost down to the basic operator level. But certainly the plant manager the the production supervisors, the assistant plant manager, and all the QA staff. They're all going to be, be it. Um, by the rule, you have to have a PCQI to write the plan. Mm -hmm. Most places already have the plans written. So now it's more about understanding how the plan was written, why it was written, and being able to act upon it and describe it in the case of an inspection or an audit. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I would look at that if it were my facility – 
is, and, and to actually, the way I say that, the way we have looked at it in our facility is anybody that might be in the, the chain of command that could be the one that ends up sitting there having to explain the plan, I have trained. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the inspector shows up and wants to talk about the, the plan, then I'm going to try to be there. But what if I'm traveling? Okay, well, then Marissa's there. And actually, Marissa would be there anyway if she could be there. But what if we're both at the same conference and traveling? Okay, well, the feed mill manager is, and both of my graduate students are, right? Like they, they're all trained because they could be in that chain of command of needing to speak to the plan. And obviously they're in the chain of making sure that the animal food is safely produced every day. And that's what it's all about to begin with. So anybody that has that ability to impact the safety of the animal food directly, and maybe not all the way down to the operator level, but certainly that supervisor level, one step up, and anybody that is going to be responsible for talking to the inspector when they're there looking at the plan, that's the groups I would say. I, I, it's probably worth going through the process of getting them, finding the, the 20 hours to send them somewhere and get them trained. That, that's that's yeah, my opinion on it. strongly agree with that. You know, in, in past experience, you feel a lot more comfortable during those inspections and, and audits when you have someone there who, you know, you know, there will always be someone there because everyone is trained yeah. who can speak yeah, to the plan. Exactly. And it also, I think, gives people even down to the operator level, if you have, you know, long-term operators, I think it gives them an extra sense of the stakes involved and, and why they're being asked to do the things they're being asked to do and gives them some more, you know, agency in their own position. So very valuable program. It's time for Famous Three. Well, it looks like we're coming close to wrapping up our time. So I'd like to ask you, we ask the same three questions of every guest on the show. Uh, The first of which is, can you recommend a resource, and it could be a book, website, podcast, anything related to feed manufacturing for our audience? Yeah, so um, it might be a bit of a shameless plug because we're involved (laughs) currently in the the, um, revision of it. But one of the best things out there continues to be the feed manufacturing technology textbook. Um, it's generally not being, there we go. Yeah. Ah, right there on the shelf. shelf. <laughs> it's, it's not being um, published and printed in, in the book form, at least not right now anymore. Um, but you can go through AFIA and you can get both a digital subscription and a uh, printed subscription to that. And it's got kind of everything related to feed milling. And what we're going through right now is trying to, find current authors in the industry, update chapters, certainly update regulatory parts of it. Um, the whole the whole idea, and, and it's, I mean, this is what I do for a living too, right? And it's on my shelf too. And and Charles and I talk about that, you know, Charles Stark being at K-State. And, and it's on all of our shelves because we still turn around and grab it and say, I, hold on, let me look through and there's something in here. I remember where it's at. Let me go read it real quick again. Um, as far as the one-stop shop to go, to go find that stuff. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything better out there than that. There's some other good websites. We did a, um, a pelleting handbook a few years ago. Uh, it's on what, um, you can basically look up what pelleting handbook. Um, it's, it's free. You just have to log in, you have to register, but then you can get in for free and it's all about pelleting. Um, that's out there. Um, and then the other, you know, podcasts like this um get a subscription to feed stuffs um feed strategy the their watts now doing the feed mill of the future um some of those things that just kind of hit the inbox every day that can be really quick reads while you know you're still waking up and and having coffee and whatnot 
that, you know, it's like, oh, that's very interesting. I didn't know that was coming. So I think all those things are great. But as far as like a single resource to keep on the shelf to, to go look from, that FMT book is still the thing that comes to mind. And it, that, that's version five. The online would, was kind of going to be version six, although it's going to be continuously updated. Um, but the first one was 1970-something. So, <laughs> a lot of information. Um, yeah, it's been around for quite a while. So that's that's definitely a really good thing. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that new edition coming out. I'm going to have to pick that up. Uh, as far as a book or resource outside your field, can you recommend something? So I'm um, I'm currently reading a book that I'm really enjoying. It's called, I might get the title wrong, but I'm going to try to get it right. I believe it's called Promises of Giants. Hmm. Um, it was written by um, a guy named John Amici, who was an NBA player for a long time. Uh, he's He's actually British. He um, he's now a doctor of like clinical psychology and does a um, a bunch of work, leadership work with with companies and things like that. Um, I found it to be a really cool book from a leadership perspective hmm. um, and very different than some of the other like there and, and not say that any of these aren't good. But the the, the um, habits of effective people and who move my cheat that all fi- feel a little bit like I'm being I'm I'm, I'm being given like like a leadership seminar yeah <laughs> this one is felt a little bit more like okay that's some interesting ways of looking things and it's about you know making promises kind of to yourself as someone who's going to be in charge but also promises to the people and really gets into this idea of how not to just make yourself effective but how to make the people below you more effective hmm. um i and and so anything like that really i, I would say that's just the one that i'm, I'm currently um read and i and i i will say this too for people who are like oh god another one the the management and self help like that's not me i don't read a lot of that i'd much rather read you know fiction whether it be old new or whatever um when i when i'm on my own time but someone recommended this one to me and i started reading it and um i've i've really enjoyed it um i think as many times and, and kate i'm sure you've you've seen this plenty as many times if i go into a facility or i'm talking to a group or whatnot as much as we can talk about the stuff related to the equipment or the stuff related to the budget or whatever else, the, the places that are the most functional are the ones that are managed well. And the ones that are managed well are managed by people that know how to deal with themselves and people. Like if, if you know yourself and you can also manage the people below you and know when to push, but when to you know give the kind word and how to evaluate them and all that, a lot of that other stuff can, you know, stuff doesn't break as often because the maintenance guys are more than happy to be there and, and put in an extra shift because they want to get it done because they have an invested interest in being there because they like working there because they like you as a manager. Right. And all of a sudden I, I have less stuff breakdown. Right. That's, that's not because I had more budgets because I have, I have good people. Um, when we do our um, for the AFIA 500 class that we do online, um, that Charles and I um, administer that we do four times a year. There's a survey and every student has to go survey uh, a female manager. And one of, we ask, what are three things you like and three things you don't like about their job? And I can tell you one, almost every single response, one of the things I like about my job is I get to build a team and I get to work with good people. So putting in the work to also learn different strategies and stuff like that, I think is great. And that's, and that's the one that I'm reading right now. And like I said, I don't read a lot of those, but that one was recommended. Again, it's promises of giants by John Amici. Um, And it's, it's kind of fun to go through and read and think about, Oh, you know, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. And I should look at myself that way. And, you know, Oh, what I'm doing is reflected down into my employees. And when I'm, overdoing it and overworked and now they think they've got to be overdoing and overworked i've you know 
I think I've made things better because we're getting more done. And in fact, I've made them worse because I'm modeling behavior that's going to burn us all out. That doesn't, that doesn't benefit me or them. It's like, oh, that's a good point. So. Very interesting. That's a great recommendation, especially for those of us looking for something in the leadership side that isn't, you know, five minute manager again. So <laughs> excellent. Well, you kind of touched on our last question. We usually ask our guests what characterizes a successful person in their mind, but given that you already kind of talked about leadership and also because it's a, a new semester and a lot of your work is in teaching both students and industry professionals, I wanted to talk to you about what do you think sets someone up for success in learning as a student? So I tell this to our students all the time. Um, and, and it, like you just said, it applies to adult learning and learning throughout your, your life as well. Um, focus on, focus on yourself, your strengths, which you can do. Um, we have a lot of students that come to college, especially at a place like NC state where the, the requirement to get in is kind of high, the GPA and everything else. But a lot of them are coming from school districts, rural school districts where to get there, you know, they were, they, they excelled and they exceeded. And now they got thrown into the ocean with a whole bunch of other people that did that too. And they can get a little depressed a, a month in and the first exam comes out and they didn't ace it. And they weren't even in the top half of the class. And oh my, you know, you know I, I don't belong here. Nah, that's not true. It's not that you don't belong here. It's just a different environment. What can you do? What are you working on, right? The other thing I tell them, and look, and I'm not knocking it because I, you know, I, I'm, I've gone through ag. I love ag, everything else. There are degrees and there are things that you do that are literally rocket science. Um, I've got a, a extended family member who is at here at NC state that's in nuclear physics. And you go over to his office for lunch and you look at the whiteboard and you just, I don't, <laughs> okay, I don't know what any of this is. All right. To do this, you have to be like, okay, you got to be a genius. Okay. That's, that's fine. But in most of what we do and in most of the things that actually run the world, you got to work hard. Mm -hmm. It's not the, the students that excel the most and the people professionally that excel the most are the ones that figure out how to work hard. That doesn't mean work all the time. That doesn't mean burn yourself out trying to study or working 20 hours a day. Now, if you don't exercise and go find time to play and have a hobby and enjoy your family and whatever else, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to work, right? But it's much more about the students who work hard and figure out the, the way that they're going to be successful than just the ones that are smart. Because we see plenty that come in and, yeah, when they walk in here based on their, their papers and based on talking to them, they're smart. They also know that about themselves and think they don't have to work all that hard. And then first chemistry test bites them because they thought, ah, I got this as where the student who didn't come up that, but they studied and they worked hard and they figured out, you know, what was going to work best for them. And they got a good night's sleep the night before, whatever it is, um, they excel. And so it's, I, I think for students, and I tell them this all the time, it's more about hard work and balancing your time and, and being a professional in, in whatever you're doing um, when it comes time to be one, than it is about, I'm not as smart as them or whatever. Eh, you know, that that's not, that's not what it's necessarily necessarily about. So that's what I think makes a successful student, someone who's going to be engaged and, and manage their time and, and work hard at, at what they do and, and do it in an intelligent way. That's a great answer. And really, I've seen that reflected in both my time as a student and in my career. I mean, sometimes, honestly, I've learned so, so much more from my mistakes and my failures than any of my successes. And a lot of it is about that attitude towards, I'm still going to come to work the next day. I'm still going to work just as hard, even though things didn't work out the way I thought they were going to at the outset. So 
Excellent answer. Well, Dr. Farenholtz, thank you so much for coming on the Poultry Podcast Show. We appreciate the broad conversation we've had today about the future and the present, practical applications all the way out to, you know, our dreams about inline NIR. Thank you so much for all the information you shared, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. All right. Thank you very much. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you. Thank you.